A couple episodes ago, I talked about bison and pronghorn, two animals that are often mislabeled as buffalo and antelope. Today, I'm going to talk about another pair of hooved animals that are also kind of misnamed. That seems to be something that the early European settlers did a lot of. The animals we call moose here in North America are called elk in Europe, and the animal we call elk, which are definitely not the same as moose, are just called deer in other parts of the world. Now, I'll do my best to explain how all this confusion came about, but let's take a closer look at two of the largest species of deer in the world. Elk and elk? Or is it moose and wapiti? Deer? Well, I guess we're going to find out. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Okay, let me first try to clear up this elk-moose naming mess. What we know as moose here in North America, scientifically Alsace-Alsace, are called elk in their European range. But by the 17th century, Alsace-Alsace had been exterminated from the British Isles. In the absence of any actual representatives of Alsace-Alsace, the meaning of the word elk became somewhat vague to English speakers, and it basically became a general term referring to any species of large deer. Dictionaries in the 18th century simply defined elk as a deer that was, quote, as large as a horse, unquote. Early English explorers and settlers to what is now Virginia didn't encounter any Alsace-Alsace, but they did encounter a large deer, scientifically Cervus canadensis, called wapiti by the Native Americans, which in Shawnee and Cree translates to white rump. The word moosh first entered the English language around 1606 and is borrowed from the Algonquin word moosh, which translates as stripper and eater of bark. For a long time, neither species, elk or moose, had an official name. People just called them a variety of things. In fact, often the elk was called the gray moose, and the moose was called the black moose. Eventually, in North America, the wapiti became known as an elk, while the moose retained its indigenous name. The name wapiti is fitting, because elk do, indeed, have white rumps. The color of the rest of their body varies by season and habitat, Gray or lighter colors are more prevalent in winter and in arid climates. Elk living in forested areas and during the summer have a more reddish hue. They have thick bodies, slender legs, and a short tail. Both males, called bulls, and females, called cows, of all North American subspecies grow a thin neck mane. Like most deer, bull elk sport antlers, typically with six tines each. Antler growth starts in the spring when testosterone levels start to rise. Antlers are bone and one of the fastest growing tissues in the animal kingdom, growing about an inch per day. In the late winter, when testosterone levels drop after mating, the antlers shed. Elk stand between two and a half and five feet tall at the shoulder. Males weigh between 400 and 1,000 pounds, females between 375 and 600 pounds. Now, prior to the arrival of European settlers, there were approximately 10 million elk in North America. They ranged across northwestern Canada and most of the United States, with the exception of the desert southwest. Nowadays, they're primarily found in the Rocky Mountain region, but many states throughout their historic range are reintroducing elk and allowing them to spread naturally. 
As of 2014, the population of wild elk in the United States was estimated to be at 1 million. Elk are one of the most gregarious deer species. During the summer, herd sizes can reach 400 individuals. For most of the year, adult males and females are segregated into different herds. Female herds are larger, while bulls form small groups or travel alone. Juvenile bulls might associate either with older bulls or female groups. In mountainous regions, elk migrate to higher elevations in the spring following the retreating snows and the opposite direction in the fall. During the winter, they prefer wooded areas since there's more food available. The number of elk in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is estimated to be around 40,000, and during the spring and fall, these herds take part in the longest elk migration in the continental United States, moving as much as 170 miles between summer and winter ranges. Elk are primarily grazers, and they consume 20 pounds of vegetation per day on average. They're particularly fond of aspen sprouts, which come up in the spring. In the absence of predators like wolves, which make the elk wary and keep them on the move, this means they can have a significant impact on aspen groves as well as willow and cottonwood. Prior to the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone, elk had gotten complacent, lingering out in the open and grazing heavily on stream and riverbank vegetation, leading to erosion and an overall degradation of the range. Grazing puts an elk in the compromising situation of being in an open area with its head down, making it harder to see what's going on around it. But where wolves are present, elk become more cautious, spending less time in the open where they're more vulnerable. The constant presence of wolves push elk into less favorable habitats, raising their stress level and lowering their nutrition and overall birth rate. While wolves are the primary predator of adult elk in North America, Bears are the primary predators of elk calves and on occasion weakened adults. Coyotes and wolverines may also take calves or weakened adults. European populations are actually preyed on by tigers. Living in groups lessens the risk of an individual becoming the target of a predator. Large bull elk are less vulnerable and can afford to wander alone, while cows stay in larger groups for the protection of themselves and their calves. Bulls are more vulnerable to predation by wolves in late winter, after they've been weakened by months of chasing females and fighting. Males that have recently shed their antlers are also likely to be targeted by predators. During the mating season, around late August, male and female herds come together. Bulls have a loud, high-pitched, whistle-like vocalization known as bugling, which advertises the male's fitness over great distances. Bugling can reach a frequency of 4,000 hertz, which is unusual for a vocalization produced by a large animal. This is achieved by blowing air through the nasal cavities. Elk can also produce deeper pitch sounds using their larynx. Cows produce an alarm bark to alert other members of the herd to danger, and calves will produce a high-pitched scream when they're attacked. Males try to intimidate rivals by bugling and displaying their antlers. If neither bull backs down, they engage in antler wrestling, sometimes sustaining serious injuries. Gestation is about eight months, and calves weigh about 35 pounds when they're born. When females are about to give birth, they will separate themselves from the main herd and remain isolated until the calf is large enough to escape predators. Average lifespan for elk in the wild is 10 to 13 years. 
Now, moose are the largest and heaviest living species of deer. On average, an adult moose stands between four and a half and seven feet tall at the shoulder, more than a foot taller than an elk. Males, also called bulls, just like elk, weigh anywhere from 800 to over 1,500 pounds, and females, also called cows, typically weigh between 450 and 1,000 pounds. From nose to tail, moose are 8 to 10 feet long. They inhabit boreal and temperate broadleaf forests in the northern hemisphere. While elk are primarily grazers, eating grasses and forbs, moose are primarily browsers, feeding on leaves, shoots, and the fruit of woody vegetation. And, like elk, moose need to eat a lot. The average moose requires about 23 million calories per day to maintain its body weight. You'd think this would mean that they're not picky eaters, but actually the opposite is true. Moose carefully select foods that are higher in nutrients and lower in fiber. Terrestrial vegetation, like willow and birch shoots, are high in energy, but these plants also tend to have a low salt content. So, about half of the moose diet consists of aquatic plants, including lilies and pondweed, lower in energy, but higher in salt. The moose's need for sodium also means that in the winter they're attracted to roads for the salt that's used to melt ice and snow. Moose have a very sensitive upper lip, which helps them distinguish between fresh shoots and harder twigs. It's also prehensile for grasping their food. In the summer, moose use this prehensile lip for grabbing branches and pulling, stripping an entire branch of leaves in a single mouthful and for pulling forbs like dandelions or aquatic plants up by the base, root and all. In addition to having a prehensile lip, the moose's large nose is distinctive among deer species for several other reasons. First is its size. A moose's proboscis comprises a full 65% of its head length. That's a whole lot of nose. Second, moose have enlarged nostrils that are positioned off to the sides rather than facing forward. Now, it's believed that these side-facing nostrils give the moose what's called stereofaction. To understand stereofaction, consider how we humans see. Each of our eyes takes in a distinct field of vision, which, when combined in the brain, lets us determine distance. Stereofaction is similar, but it's based on smell. The wide spacing of the nostrils lets moose receive two fields of scent, enhancing their ability to determine the location and distance of a source of the smells. This heightened sense of smell would be helpful in searching for food, water, danger, and mates. Since moose are solitary, they rely on long-distance scent detection to coordinate mating, so there's a strong evolutionary reason for them to have developed a special ability to track down a scent's location. The third thing that makes a moose's nose unique is that it has special structures to automatically seal it shut in water. Most mammals can open their nostrils with muscles. Think about flaring your nostrils. Only a few can use muscles to shut them. And then there's the moose. A moose can shut its nostrils without muscles. Moose nostrils contain a pad of connective tissue that expands in response to water pressure, sealing them shut. This adaptation has some obvious advantage for the moose, because they're much more dependent on aquatic habitats than other species of deer. They eat a lot of aquatic vegetation, and it's not uncommon to see a moose standing in the middle of a wetland with its head fully submerged as it grazes on underwater plants.
They're also great swimmers, able to submerge completely for 30 seconds or more, and even dive to depths of 20 feet, and a self-sealing nose helps facilitate this. On a side note, aquatic habitats also provide relief from insects and from heat. Because of their size and thick coats, moose are especially susceptible to heat stress, which, on a calm day, begins at just 62 degrees. Moose have other unique features, too. I'll start with their feet. Moose are even-toed ungulates, which means that they bear weight equally on two of their five toes, the third and the fourth. Odd-toed ungulates bear weight on three toes. With any ungulate, the other toes can be either present, absent, vestigial, or pointing backward. In the moose's case, the second and fifth toes are vestigial, in the form of dew claws facing backwards. This hoof configuration favors striding on soft ground. The moose's hoof splays under load, increasing the surface area, which limits the amount their hooves sink into soft ground or snow. It also increases efficiency when they're swimming. The body weight per surface area of the moose's foot is somewhere between that of the pronghorn, which have stiff feet and no dew claws, optimized for high-speed running, and reindeer, which have a more rounded hoof with large dew claws, optimized for walking in deep snow. The moose's body weight per surface area of their footprint is about twice that of the reindeer. Another unique feature of moose is the dewlap. The dewlap, or sometimes called bell, is a fold of skin under the chin on both bull and cow moose. Its exact function is not known, but some analysis suggests that it helps the moose regulate its body temperature. Other theories are that it serves as a signal of fitness and is used to establish both dominance and attract a mate. But probably the most recognizable feature of a moose is, of course, their antlers. Most adult bull moose have distinctive, broad, palm-shaped antlers with points along the outer edge. Moose antlers grow perpendicular to the midline of the skull and then fork. A bull moose in its prime, usually between the ages of 5 and 12, can have antlers that are 6 feet wide and weigh 45 to 50 pounds. The record spread for moose antlers was nearly 7 feet wide, and the record for weight is 79 pounds. Like other deer, antlers start growing in the spring, covered in vascular tissue called velvet, and they're shed in the winter when the bull's testosterone level drops after mating. The size and growth rate of a moose's antlers is determined by diet and age. The symmetry of the antlers is a reflection of health. Since antler growth is testosterone-driven, a moose's antlers tend to decline in both size and symmetry after the age of 12. Similarly, a moose that is castrated will shed its current set of antlers within two weeks and then immediately start growing a new set of misshapen and deformed antlers that he won't shed again. Interestingly, bull moose with antlers have more acute hearing than those without antlers. A study of trophy antlers using a microphone found that the palmate shape acts like a parabolic reflector, amplifying sound at the moose's ear. Like other deer, bull moose display with their antlers to discourage competition and to spar or fight with rivals. Cows select mates based at least partially on antler size. Rutting bulls search widely for females, but the bulls may also attract females with the smell of their urine. They paw what are called rutting pits with their forelegs, urinate into them, and then splash the urine-soaked muck onto their dewlap. Eau de cologne? More like you, day cologne. 
Both sexes call to each other during the rut. Males produce heavy grunting sounds that can be heard from over a quarter mile away, while females produce a wailing sound. Like I mentioned earlier, moose are generally solitary, and the strongest bonds are between mother and calf. Although moose don't form herds, there may be several in close proximity during the mating season. Bulls will seek several females to breed with, and actively rutting bulls can receive more than 50 puncture wounds per season from sparring with rivals. Luckily, they have thick skin on the front and the neck to help protect them from serious injury. Rutting is also metabolically expensive, and bulls lose virtually all their body fat during the mating season. Moose cows have an eight-month gestation period and generally give birth to a single calf, although if food is plentiful, the chances of producing twins increases to as high as 30 to 40 percent. Newborn moose calves are tan or reddish in color. The calves stay with their mother for just under a year. They grow quickly, but they still need their mother to protect them from predators during their first winter. Mom will drive them away shortly before their next siblings are born. Lifespan of moose averages 15 to 25 years. Full-grown moose have few predators. In their European range, like elk, tigers regularly prey on moose. Here in North America, wolves are their main threat, particularly to cows with calves. Again, bears and coyotes may prey on calves and on occasion weakened or injured adults. Unlike other large-toothed animals like horses, Moose can kick in all directions, including sideways, leaving a predator no safe direction from which to approach. Moose normally escape predators by trotting at high speed, which forces the pursuing predator into energy-intensive and tiring jumping, but which costs the moose relatively little in terms of energy. When pursued by wolves, they often enter relatively shallow water, which limits the wolves' movements and ability to attack. If moose are hindered by deep snow, they'll back into dense conifers to help protect their more vulnerable hind end and lower haunches. They might charge the wolves and attack them by slapping with their front legs and kicking with their hind legs. Moose attacks like this are fully capable of injuring or even killing bears and wolves. Believe it or not, moose are also subject to being preyed on by orcas, which are known to attack moose swimming between islands off the coast of the Pacific Northwest. Moose are not usually aggressive towards humans, but like bison, they may be aggressive if frightened or provoked. In terms of raw numbers, moose attack more people than bears and wolves combined, but usually with relatively minor consequences. In North America, moose injure more people than any other wild animal, and worldwide, only hippopotamuses cause more injuries. When harassed or startled by people, or in the presence of a dog, a moose may charge, not really surprising since this is how they handle wolves. Unlike some other dangerous animals, though, moose are not territorial, and obviously they don't see humans as potential food, so they don't usually pursue a person if they simply run away. The potential for moose aggression once inspired a driver to make a U-turn and escort me past a pair of moose when I was riding my bike in rural North Dakota. Given the size of a moose, hitting one with your car is much more catastrophic than hitting a deer. A moose's center of mass is above the hood of most passenger cars. In a collision, the impact tends to crush the front roof beams along with anyone unlucky enough to be in the front seat. Final fun fact about moose. In the 1600s in Sweden, moose were used to draw the sleighs of royal couriers and were able to travel over 200 miles per day. 
Moose were also thought to be easy to train to carry a rider on a saddle, and attempts were made to replace horses with moose for cavalry soldiers. The thought was that the moose, being much larger, would cause fear in the horses of the enemy. But it was found that moose were frightened by the sound of gunfire and much too skittish to be ridden into battle. And with that, we'll bring this episode to an end. Thank you for listening. Make sure to leave a like and to follow or subscribe to the podcast. It costs you nothing and it can potentially help me out a lot. If you like what I'm doing and you want to support future episodes, here's some things you can do. Get yourself some Dispatches from the Forest merch. Check out the Dispatches from the Forest merch store at cafepress.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. Maybe consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is both my PayPal address and where you can send me an email with any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.